happy Sunday. I'm Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. If this is your first time joining us, uh, we are in the Gospel according to Mark, kind of taking this slow roll through the Gospel according to Mark, setting ourselves intentionally in front of the face of Jesus to see who he is. And this week, we find ourselves nearing the end of Mark chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And I'm, before we get going, I'm, I'm just going to pray. And then we'll work our way through our teaching text, uh, pausing periodically to ask the Spirit of God to search our heart through the Word of God. So, so let me pray, and then we'll turn our attention uh, to God's Word. Father, we submit that there is little to nothing we can do in ourselves other than showing up to you to elicit lasting change. And even in our showing up to you, God, we are utterly dependent upon you moving, upon you stirring our hearts. And so, Lord, we come now in this time, in this season, in this community to call upon you to move, to soften our hearts, to speak to us through your word. So Jesus, would you become more clear? And as we see you more clearly, would there be in our hearts a fresh resolve to seek after you, to be the type of people who pursue your presence? Once again, if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And as we turn now to the Word of God, I want you to keep this question in front of you. As we, I'm going to read right here through our passage. Uh, what type of person receives from Jesus? What type of person receives from Jesus? Keep that question in mind as we read. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Well, from the outset, that feels pretty typical. And what I mean by that is in Mark, we have seen Jesus now time and time again encounter intense moments, which this is one of those intense moments. But it's typical too in that this is how Jesus' healings often go. He withdraws to an uncommon place. He's found out and then somebody desperately appeals to him and then boom, miracle. <laughs> so 
this is a typical moment, right, of Jesus healing in, in his ministry. Well, far from it. This is anything but typical. First, just look at the place. Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is some 35 miles north of the Galilee, and if you're not up on your geography of the ancient Near East, this is not the land promised to Israel. This is like modern-day Lebanon along the coast of the Mediterranean, and the region of Tyre, it's culturally and socially out of bounds for a Jew, let alone a Jewish rabbi. So it is odd, it is atypical to find Jesus in this Gentile land. But just consider if you, with me for a moment, like the scope of Jesus's ministry. Consider that Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captive Israelites, not the ones holding them captive. And in that regard, this is odder still. His ministry is to the children of Israel. So what is Jesus doing in the region of Tyre? Well, in, in Mark and fashion, like the details are sparse. We're not told why Jesus leaves the Galilee, and we're also not told why he goes north to Tyre. We can speculate, and so let's, let's do that. Uh, perhaps Jesus draws away from the crowds that are pressing in on him, or, or maybe he feels the rising tension within himself. I mean, after all, just this past week, he told the religious elite that their hearts were full of human excrement. So, I don't know, maybe that's a good reason to get out of town for a little while. But altogether, we don't know why Jesus leaves the Galilee, crosses the border into a Gentile land, and then heads toward Tyre of all places. But what we can say is that any self-respecting Jew, especially a Jewish rabbi like Jesus, would avoid this pagan land. And they certainly would avoid entering a home because that's uncleanness on top of uncleanness. And yet that's where we find Jesus. And I love what Jennifer Greer, a biblical scholar, observes about this scene. And she notes that Tyre as a region, and more specifically as a city, holds a significant place in the Hebrew imagination. Because Tyre is the hometown of Jezebel. And if you're familiar at all with the Bible, uh, you know that Jezebel is the Phoenician wife of King Ahab. And now you can read all about their domestic reign of terror in one and two kings. But for now, listen how the biblical witness remembers these two, and in turn, memorializes the city of Tyre. Just listen here. In 1 Kings 21, we read that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And if those words aren't fierce enough, uh, turn over to uh, 2 Kings 9. We, We end up reading this leaning in a little bit more, specifically on Jezebel, we read, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field. So what do you think the people of Israel think about this woman? See, this harsh word spoken 
over Jezebel. It actually comes to pass. She's thrown down from a window. We, we read that her blood spatters on the side of a building. She's trampled by horses and then eaten by dogs. Such is the level of disdain from this woman. This is how she's remembered. And just like we imbue, like we fill physical spaces with meaning, think about ground zero or the trail of tears. All of Jezebel's past lurks in the backdrop of Tyre and Sidon. And so for Jesus to step into this region is to step into the tension of its past. And more specifically, the tension of a woman who killed God's prophets and incited the children of Israel to worship false and foreign gods. That is the place. But that's only the first thing. Second, notice the person that Jesus meets. Look again at verse 25 here. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. So where is Jesus? Yeah, we get, okay, he's entire, but where is he in this region? He's in a home. And if you're a Jew hearing this account, my guess is that your offense meter would be close to exploding. This is almost more than you can handle. This might be something like for us, like a, like a Baptist missionary, missionary retreating in Raqqa, Syria, just like chumming with some ISIL terrorists. It's so out of place. And if the place isn't scandalous enough, a Gentile woman with a demon-possessed daughter enters the scene. Just let that sink in. Unclean on top of unclean, on top of unclean, on top of unclean. The offense meter is now exploding. At best, this woman from this frame of viewing the world would be seen as unclean. And at worst, this is like Jezebel incarnate. And immediately, with no rest or respite for Jesus, she assumes this humble position at his feet. And then from that position begins to incessantly beg. She, she does not stop. Matthew, in, in the gospel according to Matthew, records that, that the disciples can't even get her to shut up. She won't stop begging. And then we read this in verse 27. Go there with me. And he, this is Jesus speaking, said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And if you're a Jewish person listening to this, you might have just taken a little breath, a little reprieve. And maybe you're thinking, okay, I was offended by the place and I was offended by the person, but I didn't realize that you were coming to call the Gentiles out, Jesus. Okay, okay. When I, when I was thinking through this, I specifically imagine Peter, who's known to just kind of share his opinion, <laughs> interrupt Jesus. I imagine Peter thinking something 
like this, or maybe under his breath saying, finally, finally Jesus is telling it like it is. Get her, Jesus. But for us, this may just be another weird thing that Jesus says. We're kind of offended, but we're not really sure why. Should, should we be? Well, if I may, let me fill in a little context here. To call a woman a dog, let alone a marginalized mother begging on behalf of her daughter, that's an insult. Irrespective of historical position, to call a woman a dog, you fill in the word, is insulting. And maybe this still lacks context for you, so let me bring forward one of the most popular stories in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath. When David goes out to meet the Philistine warrior Goliath, Goliath churns out these words, roars them on the battlefield. What am I, a dog, that you would send these sticks out to me? What am I, a dog? You see... Goliath identifies his offense with a dog because dogs were offensive creatures. And now we could linger here in this moment and get caught up in the debate among scholars of, okay, well, did Jesus actually call this woman a, a scavenging dog? Like the dogs who ate the flesh of Jezebel? Or, or, or is Jesus calling her a dog. I mean, the word that's used is that of maybe a smaller dog. So, so maybe she's just a pet, like a puppy. However you slice this, we're only delaying an arrival at Jesus's offensive words. So how do we receive this Jesus? How do we receive an, a Jesus who might have a firm word for us? We don't. We soften him. We soften Jesus because we can't be bothered by an offensive Jesus. We think things like, well, trusting in Jesus is hard enough. I mean, the bodily rose from the dead? Like, that's pretty hard to get my mind around. Add to that a, like a, a derogatory slur? Kyle, I don't know if I can stand with that Jesus. Might I be so bold as to say, if we don't know what to do when a hard word comes to us from Jesus from time to time, then it's likely the Jesus that we're seeking after isn't the Jesus we encounter here. It's not Jesus of Nazareth. It's a Jesus that we're conjuring up, maybe a Jesus in our own image, someone who would never offend us, who always likens his sensibilities to our own who always measures his morality to our morality. You see, church, we don't get to pick and choose what we like about Jesus and then just elevate that and punt the rest. No, to follow Jesus is to wholeheartedly pursue him where he is and where he's going. And I want to call our attention to this moment. And, and lean in here because Jesus is in a house. He's not in a synagogue. So where are you right now? See, Jesus goes 
to the non-religious space. And it is there that he is sought and found. It's like this Syrophoenician woman knows what we don't know. That his presence alone is the greater portion. And so that is what she seeks. So how do we receive this Jesus? I think we actually look to a woman who's called unclean, to a woman who's called a dog. I think we take her place. I think we follow her. So let's see what she says in verse 28. But she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, yet even. See, Jesus broke outside the bounds of Israel's religious comfort zone, not to take a break from Israel or to break the spirit of his disciples or maybe take them on a little leadership retreat up on the Mediterranean. No, Jesus broke the form. He broke the form of that religious comfort zone to dismantle the illusion of the form, to wake up his people to see that God's goodness, it's never constrained to a place Because after all, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The the cattle on a thousand hills, yeah, those are his also. Wherever we are, we can seek him there. And according to this woman, he can be found even in the most unexpected of places. See, if, if form is the thing that dictates our pursuit of God's presence, Maybe the problem is less with the form and more with us. Jesus can go anywhere, and those who diligently seek him will find him. Jesus breaks outside the form, outside the boundaries, outside the comfort zone, so that women like this and people like you and me might find the greater portion in his presence. Look what, what, look at what she does. She hears him. She seeks him out. She shows up like just the power in showing up. Like church, if we just showed up, imagine, just imagine what would happen. Like the fullness of who you are showing up to Jesus, expecting something of him. And yet, when he gives her a hard word, we have to pay attention. She doesn't leave. She doesn't demand that her status be elevated. She doesn't say, well, Jesus, if I were at the table, if only I were to, to, be, to eat like the child eats. She doesn't say anything like that. Because what she knows is that a crumb in Jesus' economy is enough to sustain her. It's enough. It is more than enough. It is plenty. Perhaps she knows that Jesus can multiply a kid's sack lunch to feed thousands. If he can do that with a sack lunch, what can he do with crumbs? She goes where Jesus is to get her portion, and she will not leave that place. And you know what? We can too. Wherever you are, 
The greater portion in Jesus' presence is on offer. But the tension that I, I felt rising up in myself is, I wonder if we're willing to embody her humility. Like, are, are we willing to assume the place of a dog culturally? to get the greater portion of Jesus's presence. See elsewhere in the New Testament, um, in the wake of the cross and the resurrection, the apostle Peter, encouraging followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, who very well would take offense at this woman, he challenges them to clothe themselves in humility toward one another. To, to fashion themselves with humility, if you will. But, and this is how he instructs them to fashion themselves with humility, by casting their anxieties on God because he cares for them. But, and then he goes on, he says, by being alert, by being sober-minded, because your enemy, the adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, just someone. So resist him, standing firm in your faith because from that place, you can know that your brothers and sisters around the world suffer in the same way you do. This is the way of humility, to give our anxiety over to God, to entrust our deepest cares over into God, to be alert, to be sober-minded. That is to, to block out any outside influence from coming in and distracting us so that we might resist the one who desires our devouring. See, the place of humility drives us deep into a place of security in God's presence. And it's so interesting to me because Peter is often credited as Mark's eyewitness to these events that we're reading about in Mark 7. And so I found myself wondering, when Peter writes to these Jewish followers of Jesus who are cast out in the land, in the ancient Near East, around the Mediterranean, like as he's speaking to the diaspora there, does he have in his mind this woman as the example of humility? I mean, think about it. Where, where we would give license for this woman to, to be enraged by Jesus' words, to lash out, to, to cancel Jesus and all of his ministry. She's unoffendable. She stands firm. She persists. She receives Jesus' challenging words and leans in. I wonder if she is the example of humility in Peter's mind. We don't know, but just wondering. Are we willing to clothe ourselves in humility like this woman does? And what's even more compelling is that she's not even seeking Jesus for herself. It's for her daughter, her daughter who's not even there. See, ch check this. The presence and power of Jesus can move from one house, like the one we're recording this in, to the house that you're in. 
Jesus has no bounds. His power has no bounds. And in the Spirit of God, neither does his presence. Except for the bounds that we ourselves place on him. So let me just ask, what, what bounds have you placed on Jesus? Is your boundary a place thing? All about where you gather, with whom you gather? Is it a place thing? Maybe it's a form thing. It's the, the manner in which you gather. It's the, the proximity to others or, or the songs that are sung or the liturgy that's enacted. Or maybe your boundary, it's not those things. Maybe your boundary is a person boundary. You, you think you're too far gone for Jesus' power and presence to, to mean anything significant for you. Or it's not you, it's that other person. Their political preferences have discredited them. They've, they've set them beyond. Their allegiances, their ideologies, those people are outside of Jesus' reach. What bounds have you placed on him? And what's so curious to me is, is that the bounds that we place on Jesus are often a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we've told him that he can't work in our hearts, then it's likely he won't work in our hearts. If, if we've placed his power in a form, in a certain way of gathering around the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, then we're likely only to encounter his power and presence there. And so I think the invitation for us, church, is to seek Jesus like this woman seeks Jesus. So that we might hear words like this in verse 29. Go there with me. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. See, the soil of this woman's heart, it's ready to receive whatever Jesus has for her. Challenging words in all. And in those challenging words, what's true of her comes out. Humility True humility, not false humility, not play acting like the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, but true humility. It, it positions her in a place of receiving from Jesus. It, it roots her deep down into Jesus's care because that's where she's entrusted herself. That's where she persists. That's where she longs to be. And isn't it fitting that God would give grace to the humble? See, Gateway, my, my hope for us in this season is that we would be a people who humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is an odd passage, not just for the words, but for the interaction, for the way that Jesus hears her words, seems to lose the argument and relents, granting her what she wants. It's weird for all those elements, but when I think about our community, it's weirder still. Because this is a moment we can actually see ourselves into, where Jesus is at work from a distance. Like, does this not push back against the cultural script? 
Does this not push back on desires for place? What if the Jesus we're pursuing is too small? What if the Jesus we need to pursue is the Jesus we find here, who has hard words for us, who's willing to see, are we going to stay? Are we going to persist? Are we going to zealously seek his presence? Wherever he is and wherever we are. This woman gives us a pathway forward into resilience. Because what is true of us, church, will come and is coming out right now. Some of it we won't like, but there is beauty to be had here. And Jesus sees it in us. And I believe that he is calling us to resolve our hearts to pursue his presence that he wants to develop in us, in Gateway, in Des Moines, a resilient group of disciples, a resilient group of apprentices who will, irrespective of circumstances, seek his presence. Because in his presence, there is the greater portion. And he wants us to be that portion for our city. So will we? Are we willing to embody the way of Jesus we see on display in this woman? Are we willing to humble ourselves? My desires for us to do this cannot be your desires. They must be your own. So would you, would you ask the Spirit of God to search your heart to say, well, what ways have I been walking contrary to humility? Has pride welled up in my heart in such a way that I'm elevating my position over and against others, elevating my goods, my rights over my responsibility as a follower of Jesus to lay myself aside in love? If you ask these questions, know these are dangerous questions because God might actually answer and ask you to lean in. So let us pray. Jesus, we need you. We desire you. Let us persist. Sustain us through the power of your spirit, I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.